Did you hear this story from the US about the 17-year-old schoolgirl who was horrified when her classmate played Bump and Grind by R. Kelly? She'd seen the documentary about his abuse and was appalled. She asked her friend to turn it off, and when he refused, saying that he knew the man was bad, but that didn't stop him enjoying his music, she decided he wasn't worth knowing. She cancelled him. To her, he no longer existed. And of course, there's the story of J.K. Rowling and her now infamous tweet in response to the use of the phrase, people who menstruate. This is what she said that caused such a storm on Twitter and beyond. I'm sure there used to be a word for those people. Someone help me out? Wombum, Wimpun, Woomud? She was rounded on by the trans community, her fans, and even the Harry Potter actors. Were they right? She's such an influential person after all, and so should she be more careful about what she says? Is it okay to cancel someone for the music they listen to? Or to vilify and to seek to shut down people for the tweets they post? Or should freedom of speech and expression be protected at all costs? I'm Paul Dolan, a professor of behavioural science at London School of Economics, and this is the Duck Rabbit Podcast. I've spent years researching happiness and written books about it. Now I'm interested in how our polarised culture might be making us miserable. I want to see if we can find a way through all of this, to identify some of the important fault lines and to see whether it's possible for us to be more accepting of difference. And also for us to recognise some of the similarities between us. Remembering the duck rabbit illusion, whilst you might only see one animal, they are both animals after all. Today I want to look at freedom of speech. I'm not entirely clear how I feel about all of this, so it'd be interesting to work my way through it. Whilst freedom of speech has long been held up as an ideal in liberal democracies, we've never really been allowed to say exactly what we want. There have always been constraints around inciting violence or causing physical harm. But it does seem that these constraints are moving across into psychological harm, with causing and taking offence top of the list. So should I be allowed to cause as much offence as I like, or should council culture and no platforming be taken seriously? And actually, to what extent is the assault on freedom of speech real or imagined? I'll be joined again by my old mate Rory Sutherland. He's vice chair of Ogilvy, a major advertising agency, and he's an expert on consumer behaviour. Good afternoon, Rory. Lovely to see you again. Ah, it's a joy, as ever. The highlight of my week. Fantastic, even if only that were true. Right, so listen, today we're going to talk about freedom of speech and cancel culture. I wonder, I'm going to start with a question. <laughs> I don't know the answer to this, but have you ever been cancelled? Have you ever said anything that's really upset somebody to the extent that they want to get rid of you? Um, I've had a few weird brushes with um, cancel culture. Uh, one of them was when I made a joke about Swedish sandwiches in vague relation to Greta Thunberg. And a load of people started trying to get Greta and Ogilvy um, onto the kind of thread. Now, I subsequently apologised because I said there was no intention to cause offence here. I, it never occurred to me that this was offensive because in my mind I was making a joke about Swedish sandwich practice, not about Greta. But, but, but I've never actually been in the full forefront of an absolute Twitter storm and nor do I want to because it looks terrifying, I have to admit. Obviously, working at Ogilvy, have you... Um... Are you conscious when you're thinking of campaigns or working on campaigns of second-guessing where offence might be caused? There are cases where it happens where nobody anticipated it. Um, I mean, the most extreme case was an advertisement which featured what is really a hundred-year-old comedy trope for Barclays, 
where someone gets a bee trapped inside their clothing and has to leap into a lake by divesting themselves rapidly. And there was a massive surge of complaints saying that it was insensitive to people with bee sting allergies, which I have to say, I can confidently say, nobody in the agency or at the bank was conscious of that problem when they made the commercial. Today, I'm going to be speaking to two people with very different opinions. The first is Matthew Said. He's a Sunday Times columnist and he's written some great books, including Rebel Ideas and Dare to Be You. As someone who used to play table tennis to a pretty decent standard, I'm most impressed by the fact that he stood at the top of the British rankings in his playing days and competed for Team GB in two Olympics. He's a defender of free speech and in the past has backed the gymnast Lewis Smith for mocking Islam. The other person is Asaka. She's a journalist and left-wing activist. She's senior editor at Navarro Media, which is an independent left-wing media outlet. She believes that cancel culture and infringement on free speech is exaggerated by the right-wing press. She found herself in the middle of a Twitter row with a journalist, Julie Birchall, who was accused of Islamophobia. The book Julie was writing at the time about cancel culture was subsequently cancelled. Okay, before we get into that then, let's hear from our WhatsApp group. I think it's frightening the number of people are allowed to say what they really want to. It's ridiculous. you just got to watch what, you, what you're saying all the time. Yeah, you've really got to watch it, otherwise you might be accused of something you're not. No one's saying, oh, we should cancel everyone. That's not what's happening. And I think it's really interesting as well that mo like most people seem to see that. It's a totally manufactured discussion, I would say, by kind of like some right-wing weirdos and then like people picking it up in the media and thinking that I guess it gets clicks. Cancel culture is very much tied to the internet. I almost think that it's a manufactured debate, reactions and creating polarisation. Social media has changed what free speech means and now gives more or less anyone the ability to express their opinion to countless people. And so regarding cancel culture, I think I don't agree that everyone should get untold access to expressing their opinions, especially people that have large followings and uh, large power bases. I think cancel culture is dangerous. It's often just used to to silence and censor views that just don't fit into whatever the currently acceptable ideology is. I think, I think we need to be more robust in being able to discuss issues and holding people accountable before we leap to cancelling them. Some interesting points of view there, Rory. I think uh, as you reflect on that, it's one of the things that is a sort of certain irony maybe in there that people who are opposed to cancel culture very much in freedom of speech and expression, is it, isn't it a freedom of speech and expression to cancel somebody? Well, you might argue it's very strange because it's actually self-limiting and it's reducing your rights to hear things. I think there are people on both sides of the debate who have merit here because undoubtedly the right, you know, the Daily Mail would be the sort of knee-jerk response, undoubtedly makes too much play about some instances of silencing or cancelling and also attributes to cancel culture things which probably aren't. But it does seem to be slightly asymmetrical in that certain right-wing opinions are considered unspeakable, whereas wandering around with a T-shirt with Mao on it is basically OK. Paul, how are you? Good to be with you today. Looking forward to our chat. 
yeah, I am too, mate. Thank you so much for finding the time to talk to me. That's Matthew Saeed. He's a Sunday Times columnist. I write quite a bit in in, in the sports pages because I'm a former ping pong international. I know that only too well. Well, I'm glad you didn't snigger at that, Paul. I, whenever I mention my past in table tennis and ping pong, it kind of sounds like a jumped up parlor well, game. I don't, people forget blow, that it's actually... I don't want to blow too much smoke up your ass, but I used to play table tennis to a reasonable standard. And that was why that was what first drew me to start in reading your articles was, oh, my God, this guy's really good at table tennis. <laughs> I didn't know that. So what yeah. did you what, I used did you to play to county level. No, I played to county level. And you had a proper, you know, sponge bat... I had, I had a bat where in the days it was all the fashion to put glue on the bat before you played. Do you remember that? Oh my goodness! So you were really good. Yeah. So you, you take you, the you, you take the you take off you know you take right. off the uh, the uh, like about ten minutes before going on and playing whilst it's still wet the glue's wet and you play with the glue wet so that you get more traction on the on, on the ball. I, well, I used to be have massive <laughs> looping. I used to have massive looping right. forehand topspin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In fact, if, if people are listening on the, the audio only, Paul is actually now doing a topspin. <laughs> I was doing a loop. Top spin I that, and I can, loop. I can verify that it's actually a very good technique. It's <laughs> unusually uh, symmetrical. Listen, I want to talk to you today about um, freedom of speech. One of the things I'm trying to do on this podcast is navigate my way through complex issues that we are seemingly becoming increasingly polarised on. Um, and this feels like it's one of those. And it's one of those where I'm not very clear about my own views anymore on it. Um, I think I started from the position that we should be fully entitled to say pretty much what we want to whomever we want in whatever ways we want and face the social sanction that comes from that. Um, but I'm increasingly unclear whether I whether that's true anymore, um, either for myself or for society. I don't know. Just freedom of speech. Tell me what you think. I think I'm in the same boat as you, Paul. I think it's a it's a tough issue to have a clear view on. Mine uh, evolves through time. You came out in defence of Lewis Smith and his criticisms of Islam. Yes, yes, that's yes. right, the gymnast. Yes, yes I did, yes. I did. Yes. I, if I remember rightly, I mean, for those who can't remember, I mean, this is quite a while ago now, but Lewis Smith, the top gymnast and medalist at the Olympic Games, he... Uh, kind of mocked Islam in a he video did. that went viral, you know, sh- shouted a couple of Islamic slogans in a way that was seemed to be disrespectful to the religion of Islam. And a lot of people were saying that he should be dropped uh, by the British Olympic Association, that it was a disgrace. I think people were talking about his funding being withdrawn. I was completely outraged by this, if I'm, if I'm honest. It seems to me if somebody wants to ridicule a religion... That is entirely legitimate. And the, the, the requirement that he apologised for, for laughing at the idea that people call out to a deity in the sky and justify terrorist atrocities, some of them a very small minority, on the basis of um, Islamic theology, seemed to me entirely legitimate. And I thought it was a terrible mistake to, to go after him in the way that people did. What if he was mocking a specific individual who was Islamic? It depends on how, I suppose, Paul. If if I, if he was mocking the content of the beliefs that were being expressed by that individual, I'd be okay with it. Yeah. If he was mocking that individual without that context, then I'd be much more uncomfortable. Yeah. So this speaks to you know you know we've talked about this in various ways before. Context matters. It's two words that come out of my mouth every time I teach, because context drives everything about our understanding of things. What 
does it, it feels to me a little bit like we're losing sight of context in some of our discussions around freedom of speech. Would that be, would that, do you think that would be a fair representation? Almost you kind of have to, things are taken out of context and we discuss the issue as if it sits in a vacuum somewhere in relation to the conversation that we're having from polarised perspectives. So, so I think um, if you take the interview that Harry, Prince Harry and Meghan Markle gave to Oprah Winfrey, I was amazed how quickly uh, people drew to a very strong inference about whether they were telling the truth or whether they were lying. And of course, the, the, surely the rational response is claims have been made uh, my own innate sympathy goes out to somebody who was clearly expressing mental difficulties and mental distress. But the question of the empirical truth behind certain claims about whether their son was going to be allowed to be a prince and so on, one wants to understand the broader context. What does the law say? What does the Queen say? What does the Royal Palace say? There's probably a number of different people who could provide useful testimony that would enable us to tease out whether somebody made a mistaken inference, whether somebody exaggerated, whether something awful had been done to this couple. I'm just amazed at how quickly we draw inferences from the specific to the general without looking at context. Yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting piece of that as well, which is the comments around the colour of the child. Um, and, I mean, it's you know, it, it sounds like it was probably a racist comment, <laughs> but... I mean, we talk all the time about what the child is going to look like when you have people, parents of different eye colour, different hair colour and different skin um, colour. I mean, that's what we like. We all do. It's a it's a natural inquiry into, oh, I wonder what combination of attributes our child's going to have. And so that in itself isn't racist, is it? I mean, I, I, that's what I find really interesting. I mean. Of course, of course, it isn't in itself racist. It, 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 it's, it's, it's obviously not in itself racist because I had a conversation. I mean, I'm um, brown skinned. Uh, my father's very dark, and my mother is is got red hair. Uh, so me and my wife, my wife has red hair, although she dyes it blonde. Um, so we began to discuss the probability, uh, you know, on the, based on the recessive genes of our child having red hair and the colour of our children's. And we have two children now who are sort of roughly closer, you know, probably two thirds of the way to my wife's colour of skin than, than my own. But we had a discussion about it. Um but the idea that that discussion was racist is, of course, ridiculous. We were just very curious. Um, and, and I had conversations with very dear friends about exactly this. But when you're talking to friends who are on your side and are supportive, you know that that question doesn't have any racist intent. But there are contexts. You know, if somebody had said that to... I remember living... I lived for a while in, a, in, a, in, a, in Chesterfield after graduating from university, and I just happened to get in with a crowd that would, were definitely racist towards me, and I found it very difficult. If that question had been asked in that context, I would have felt so uncomfortable. And I would, you know, I'm quite, you know, I hope, you know, reasonably resilient person, but I found Chesterfield difficult because I was in with a crowd that were excluding me all the time. The little comments that would be made, the little glances, you could see that they basically had me as the punch bag of the group. And it's a horrible thing, Paul. And when it's on the basis of your skin colour and arbitrary characteristic, it's even worse. And uh, had they said it, yes, gosh, it would be horrific. But as you say, it all depends on the context. 
What do we do to make the nuance of context more salient? So, so I think that it starts very early in life. My intuition would be that people would be much less willing to, as it were, condemn Lewis Smith on the basis of a particular video or to condemn um, the royal family on the basis of a particular phrase that hasn't been contextualized or to, as we often do in Western culture, take an email that had been sent and has been leaked and take that as representative of a person's character without thinking, well, hang on a second, what were the emails preceding it? Was it a joke? Was he being ironic? Or taking a tweet and then highlighting four words from it and retweeting it and saying, well, clearly that person's a racist. And then people saying, well, obviously, because of these four words. That is ridiculous when you think about it. So it's a very interesting set of comments. I wonder what you think in particular of mocking religion in a way that really deeply offends religious people. Um, it's your right to do it, but I don't think you should. Why would you want to actually set out deliberately to offend someone held sacred to millions of people around the world for no particular gain? Do you find the life of Brian funny? Yes, hysterically funny. And my wife, who's a vicar, finds it funny as well. Is that not, is that not doing exactly the same thing? It seems to me that the life of Brian film is entirely a mockery of Christianity. Um, and yet that's acceptable, but other forms of mockery aren't. What, what is it that makes them different? The, the, I mean, uh, modern-day Christianity is generally fairly easygoing. Being made fun of is fairly minor, whereas you've got to remember that isn't necessarily present in all religions. Yeah, excellent. Thank you, Rory. Listen, let's now hear from Ash Saka. She's a journalist who got caught up in the row with Julie Birchall. What happened at the time is I saw an old Rod Liddell article where he was talking about a teacher who had run off with a 15-year-old student. And one of the things that he said in the article was, I could never be a teacher because I couldn't picture myself not trying to shag the students. And for me, I'm not saying he should lose his job or he should be arrested. I'm just like, that's really distasteful. And I don't really understand how that got published. Julie Birchall, because I'm Muslim and she'd made comments before about my faith, said, well, how old was Muhammad's first wife? Actually, Muhammad's first wife was older than him. She meant Aisha, who was, who was um, a later wife. And the, the scripture is contested. It says anywhere between 9 and 19 in Islamic law, a marriage is not legal unless the, the bride has reached puberty. But also, I'm very glad that we live in an age where the age of consent is 16 and above. <laughs> I'm very, very much in favour of that. Um, and afterwards, it sort of degraded from there. I didn't ask for this to happen at all. And she's since acknowledged that I didn't ask for this to happen. She lost a book contract over it. And it got reported as a cancel culture issue, as if the problem here was what had happened was censorious Islam versus free speech. So because it also turned into a really big story and a story which misrepresented me and because I was on the receiving end of a lot of abuse, repeating the things that she'd said, I instructed lawyers to take out a case for defamation. And she has settled that case. She has apologised and retracted her defamatory comments. She has uh, issued a really fulsome apology for all the different aspects of what she said. So for me, and this is where we lose things by calling things cancel culture, 
Because from my perspective, and also from the perspective of the law, what's happened here isn't about what questions can you or can't you ask about Islam. People are free to ask whatever obtuse questions they like. It's about making statements which are untrue, which are abusive in their nature, and to play into these Islamophobic tropes of any Muslim must be an Islamist and associated with fundamentalist Islam, and also must be an apologist for child rape, which obviously I'm not. So it was an intensely frustrating and intensely upsetting experience yeah, at the time. Yeah, of course. I mean, you'd be, you'd be pathological if that didn't upset you. Yeah. and But I think that what this has been able to do is draw, I think, quite a useful line between what constitutes abuse, harassment and defamation and what constitutes legitimate, even if I consider it obtuse, questioning of faith. Is it okay for me to offend you and your faith? Well, yes, within the boundaries of protected speech. So by that I mean it can't be defamatory, it can't be abusive and it can't be harassing but say for instance if, if you wanted to ask a very obtuse question or say a very obtuse thing I've got the right you've got the right to do that and I've also got the right to say maybe I don't want to hear that today or yeah. maybe I'm not up for it I think that one of the issues is that this question of offense and religion which I do think is a, a right um, has been abstracted from the kind of structures which target, disempower and harm people of certain groups. So for me, it's about, of course, protecting the rights to freedom of expression. I'm an Article 10 evangelist, um, but also balancing that against people's right to organise and to politically express themselves that way as well. So I think that what often gets called cancel culture is a means of articulating disapproval which is itself a form of free speech and that for me is the kind of core um bit of disingenuousness that's at the heart of this whole conversation is that when you call something cancel culture what you're doing is is you're stacking the deck you're saying those who disapprove of me automatically are illegitimate because what they're trying to do is infringe upon my freedom of speech yeah. now of course there are there are things to worry about and i don't i don't like the culture of uh, social media censoriousness but I think that we've got to deal with it from the starting position of this is also freedom of speech. So I wonder what you make of all of that Rory there's a really, a really set of complex issues in there but I wonder what you make of the whole issue to do with Julie Birchall and her response to Ash. So having different viewpoints is really really useful and really valuable but when I think Highly politicised white people hijack it really to play status games with other white people. The motivation gets questioned. As you know, Rory, one of the things we do every week is we, uh, we try and conduct a fun Twitter poll. Although I'm not sure this week's was that much fun. But we did ask a couple of questions. And I wonder what you think. Actually, I'm going to ask you this question. What do you think the results were on this following question? Right. So we, we asked people, which statement best describes your view, stroke behaviour regarding free speech? Can causing offence override or be grounds for limiting free speech? A, no, it should never, or B, it can sometimes. What do you think the proportions were of A and B? Basically, you can... You can, you can uh, my my guess would be, it, it yeah. would be almost around 50-50. Yeah, so I was expecting, I have to say, it's easy when you've got the results to say that you know the answer and you knew it beforehand, but most people said, no, it should never. In fact, 
of our respondents said, no, it should never. And only 12% said it can sometimes. Now, of course, I have to caveat this with it being a poll on Twitter and all of the selection effects that go into the survey responses. But that's quite an overwhelming number mm. of people saying that you should basically be allowed to say whatever you want, irrespective of the offence it causes. Uh, yes. And actually, I think that's an interesting case of showing the majority understand that you need to draw a line in the sand somewhere because the attempt to rationalise where the constraints are possible is simply impossible. Thank you, Rory. Again, I've still got a few unanswered questions here. And probably the best way to answer them is to talk to someone who's done some serious academic research in the area. So before reaching any conclusions, I wanted to speak to my colleague at the LSE, Shakuntala Banerjee. She's a professor of media, culture and social change. And she's writing a book on the subject called Social Media Hate. When you sort of grow up poor and you grow up as a person of colour and you grow up as an immigrant in a different country, you learn how to self-censor in particular situations in ways which don't get covered by how the media nowadays talk about self-censorship and cancel culture. So basically, you, you learn about the kinds of things that you could say that would lose you a job, for instance, or that might, might not get you a certain kind of opportunity. And that kind of self-censorship, which I know is very, very common amongst scholars of colour, students of colour in schools, which are predominantly white across the US and across the UK and in France, is something which has been with us for, for decades, if not now for centuries, right? And I, I'll be sort of gentler when I talk um, later, but I think it's good to set the parameters of our conversation right from the very beginning in that I'm really interested in the way words like cancel culture become very popular amongst right-wing academics when what they've been doing is just barring people from entering the public sphere for centuries and decades. Do you feel like we're making progress? I ask that question because I, I, you know, look, I'm trying to navigate my way through all of this and I'm not entirely sure what I think about any of it really. So I feel like on the one hand, we, it feels like we are. So, you know, for example, I don't know, using the N word is now not an acceptable word to use in any environment. And maybe in the end, it will just disappear. We won't even think of what the N word was. It will just disappear entirely from language. Um, that seems to be progress, I think. I worry on the other hand about who's doing the policing and how the policing of the language is done and whether that poses any challenges for the relationship with power. I think that's a, a really important point. Now, I'll use the example that you used. And since you talked about the N-word and you said it wasn't um, usable in any environment, I think that's absolutely right and proper that no one who is not from a marginalised community against whom that slur was used should ever use that word. I think, however, that it is used. It is used by people from historically marginalized communities, from black communities, particularly in the US. And it is used in completely different contexts to the ones in which it's used by white people. And I think that's also right and proper because it's being reclaimed in particular ways. And I don't think that we should ever forget the history from which that word came. So one of the things that's obviously really important is the role of context. I mean, I use those, I, I use I use the words context matters more than any other two words when I teach. So I'm just constantly talking about context, driving behavior, driving our understanding of pretty much everything. I, it's interesting in relation to to the use of um, terms because I, so take my own example. I come from a very working class background. So I am very sensitive to the, to the word chat. I don't think I would 
appropriate it or use it because it sends a conflicting message almost that you can't say it, but I can about myself. That feels, I don't know, confusing. If I'm, I'm, I'm kind of challenged in that. And again, I wouldn't, I don't know how I would censor other people from using it. It's used as a term of abuse. It's an offensive term, but would I prescribe someone against ever saying it? I don't, this is why I find this so fucking confusing because I don't, I don't actually know the answer. Help me out here. You spoke very candidly about yourself. And I mean, I could probably say that when I was young, growing up, I had a lot of terms of uh, misogynist abuse aimed at me by various different people. So for instance, you know, I was, I was called a bitch on a number of occasions when I was doing my job as a union rep. Um, I was told not to be a bitch. Um, 10 years later, when I was in other circles, really, different circles in my LGBTQ groups and people were like um, jokingly calling each other bitch. I did feel personally uncomfortable and went through a period of being confused. But I didn't feel that the onus then was simply on me as an individual and nor is it on you as an individual and nor is it our job as a minoritized group whether working class or, or black or LGBTQ, to deal with the confusion of the majority who has perpetuated those stereotypes. Our job is to do what we feel as a group is best for the group. And I think in the conversations I had, and quite, quite sort of rough conversations at the time with a lot of people when I was sort of saying, why are we using this language? You know, why are we using the C word? Why is it so freely and liberally applied between friends? How can you clap someone on the back and go, my bitch? You know, it was, it was something that I was trying to come to terms with, but I felt that was a job that I had to do. It was important not only at the time I was sort of an English teacher, not only as, a, as someone who wanted to teach and learn about language and the histories of language. It was also important as someone who had been the subject of that slur at various points in my life to take that on and try to understand um, the power that it gave people to be able to reclaim that word and reclaim that phrase. Right. There's a kind of power in retaining control of the language which has been used against you. Yeah, that just doesn't help me at all. That even makes me even more confused. <laughs> but, I, but I totally get it. I totally get it. I totally get it. The second point, though, is a really interesting comment you made about bullying. And I think where I'm reaching a conclusion on, on some of what I think about these issues is really two things. Context matters, obviously. That's fundamentally important. And secondly, I really don't like bullies. And I think that's where, where we can agree, isn't it? We need, we need a conversation about when who's doing the bullying and under what conditions. That feels to me like where the different sides, insofar as there are you know different sides on this, can come together. I agree entirely that bullying should be eradicated. Perhaps we disagree on what constitutes bullying, because for me, again, I'll go back to what you said, context is absolutely key. And I think when a group of people stand up against a historical injustice and they do so, whether they do it verbally on social media or whether they do it physically by demonstrating, that that is not bullying. When they have imagined that there is a historical injustice against them, the way in which the people that invaded the capital in the US did, when they have been encouraged in their fantasy by leaders because that leads some people to power, then you can argue that 
yes, those people are bullies, but they think of themselves as victims. So I think in your story, there is a lack of nuance. Labeling someone as a bully or something as bullying behavior is also really problematic if it's coming from, uh, if the label is coming from a powerful group towards a less powerful one. We could talk for a long time. I've learned a lot and I do have I changed my mind about things? I think I'm, again, it is the understanding of context and nuance. I think you've alerted me to a better understanding of that, I think. And I'm greatly appreciative of that. I'm greatly appreciative of your time. Um, Thank you. I think that, I mean, fundamentally, the most important thing is that, especially as academics, is that we continue to engage and discuss. Very much agree with you. Thank you. Thank you so much. I think part of the problem with this polarised debate at the moment is it's often framed around what happens online. People can be pretty fucking horrible online in a way that they're not so nasty in person. We know that when we are talking to someone in person and we get a bit angry, if we walk away for a few minutes, we can calm down. In fact, if we can go away for about 10 to 15 minutes, that gives us enough time for our amygdala, our old system one, to calm down and for our prefrontal cortex, system two, to re-engage. This is the kind of thing we need to do when we engage online. Before wading in, take a long, deep breath. So I think we don't want to extrapolate too much from what goes on online. I know it's important and I know it's shaping the way that we discuss things with one another. But if we can just calm down, I reckon we'll be able to speak both more freely and offend less frequently. Okay, well, that's all well and good, but I can't wriggle off the hook too much. I do need to still define the legitimate boundaries of harm. I don't think that being offended can ever itself be enough to restrict freedom of speech. I've always been a little bit sceptical of the thin ends of the wedge arguments, but I think that's important here. At the same time, we need to be alert to when freedom of speech is being used to bully people. We must absolutely do more to understand the experiences and the beliefs that cause people to have different views about freedoms, rights and responsibilities. Seems to me that the real issue is the vilification of people who disagree with us. In fact, that's what really motivates this whole podcast series. We know that we can sometimes take kindness as a sign of weakness, and we can also take acceptance of difference as a sign of not feeling strongly enough about something. I care deeply about many things, but I also care deeply about your right to disagree with me, and yeah, to sometimes offend me. I remain optimistic about these issues. I think that good arguments will beat bad ones. They beat them by flushing them out, not by cancelling them out. It does strike me sometimes that those who are most concerned about regulating free speech are very privileged people we don't really like people disagreeing with them. You know, but at the same time, I'm alert to power structures that exist in society. That, that does create an ambivalence. When we think about social class, like when you think about use of the word chav, I don't like that word. I don't like that word being used. It's always used as an offensive term. Would I like to prescribe it? I'm not sure I would. I'd much rather us learn about how not to use it. At the end of the day, nothing is purely duck or rabbit. I'm known for saying context matters more than any other two words in class. I keep saying that context matters and nowhere does context matter more in when we judge what people say. We can't know whether something is offensive, racist or whatever without knowing the context. One thing I'm absolutely confident about is that we mustn't jump to conclusions and I'm worried that we're losing sight of that. As an academic, I do take seriously research that suggests that right-leaning academics feel constrained in what they can say. Speaking personally, I see my job as one of provocation. I don't deliberately set out to offend anybody, ever. But I might do sometimes. 
because in trying to find where boundaries are, we're sometimes going to overstep them. I want to be willing to accept that, to learn from my mistakes, and to help create a better society, a more tolerant and inclusive society. And I think that does require us to have freedom of speech, whilst at the same time being respectful and forgiving. That was the Duck Rabbit Podcast. I'm Paul Dolan, and it was a Mother Come Quickly production. This podcast forms part of the Shaping the Post-COVID World Initiative at the LSE. Next time, cream cakes or CrossFit, ketamine or Kilimanjaro. I know they might sound like odd questions, but next time we're going to be going straight to the heart of polarised views about what people should be allowed to do to their bodies and minds. Mm-hmm.